And so my model is very much encouraging the client to write their own material. The model works very well in that you can be working with more people, but they always love what they've written. And it takes you know, a lot of the hard work out of it as well. Welcome to the Life Story Coach podcast, where you'll hear interviews, tips, and advice on the craft and business of personal history and life story writing with your host, Amy Woods Butler. Hi guys, welcome to the show. This is where we talk about growing our life story business. Clients come to us because they want to record their stories and their memories to share them with their family and friends and with future generations. And they need our help to write that book or to make that video or audio. Before we jump into today's interview, a quick reminder that there's still time to enter the contest for a free copy of Scrivener, the writing software. If you want to get your name in the drawing, all you have to do is leave a written review of the Life Story Coach podcast. So head over to iTunes to do that. And then afterwards, send me an email with I reviewed the show in the subject line. All reviews are anonymous. There's no need to tell me what you wrote. Just tell me that you wrote one. I'll be drawing a name from a hat the week of February 18th. So make sure to get your name in soon. Today, I'm happy to welcome Mike Oak. Mike is the founder of Bound Biographies, a life story writing service based in Oxford, England. He's personally assisted with over 400 books, 400, and he's recognized as a leading authority on the writing of private life stories. He's had media coverage in the UK, he's done lectures in the UK and in the US, and he's also the author of two books, Write Your Life Story and Times of Our Lives. And we're going to hear probably at the end of the podcast uh, a little bit about a new course that he just put together. So in other words, he's, he's a bit of a rock star in the life story business in England. Um, but what I'm really excited to talk about is how he helps people with their books, because I think it's an interesting departure from um, what I think many of us do. So welcome to the show, Mike. Hello. Sorry, I'm laughing over here because I've never been called a rock star before, but uh, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Hey, every industry has their rock stars, so so wear it proudly. <laughs> well, why don't you start by telling us, I, I, I looked on your website and I see that Bound Biographies has been in existence for a very long time. Uh, why don't you start by telling us um, when you founded the company and how you got into the business? Okay. Um, thank you. Um, I'm delighted to be talking today. Thank you very much. Uh, it started, I suppose, I was working in a computer company. I was a bit disillusioned uh, with the company. I could see that redundancy might be coming, and I was thinking um, I'd like to find something that's got a bit more soul in it, a bit more um, interest. And I saw an article about someone helping his grandfather write his life story, and I thought, what a lovely idea. And I put an advert out. And it was my lucky day when Roy Barton got in touch with me. He lived about uh, 40, 50 miles away, west of London. And he was a retired headmaster. And he had written four Leverarch files worth of writing. And he wanted some help in putting this into a book for his friends and family. And this was back in 1991, uh, before we had all the wonderful digital wizardry and technology that we have now. And I, in fact, I called the company Bound Biographies because initially all we could do was actually bind the books as you would very much a PhD thesis or something like that. We'd bind them in leather so they'd look good. And I put a couple of dummy books together and I went to see Roy 
and we agreed to get together. And the first thing I had to do was to type up, oh, I don't know, I suppose the best part of 100,000 words. And I thought the best way of editing this or proofreading it was to read it through with Roy, to read it back to him. Then I can make changes as we go along. The interesting thing or part of this was that as we were going through it, he would be saying my mother and I'd say, well, that's great. But what's your mother's name and what's her maiden name? Or he might be talking about his friend Jack. And I said, great. Well, you know, how do you know Jack? So, well, actually, he was our next door neighbor. So we were sort of kind of embellishing it as we went along, making it more thorough. And we went through this. And actually, the manuscript manuscript did become a lot more thorough. And I think Roy had uh, 23 copies of the book. We put photos in. And he loved them for friends and family, at which point I told him that it was my first book and we had a good laugh. And um, then, sadly, Roy had a couple of strokes and his his wife, Margaret, phoned me and said, look, encourage Roy to do another book. He's losing the will to live. He needs a project. Mm -hmm. So this second book was much more collaborative. So I would go along and I took a big luggable computer with me and I would chat to Roy maybe from 10 till 11 in the morning and then he'd go up to bed for two or three hours and I would type up what we discussed. So in that sense, it was a bit more ghostwriting or certainly collaborative. Then it'd come down, uh, I know, 2.33 in the afternoon, and we'd go through what I'd written. And that worked very well. And it kept him going because he was waiting for the birth of his granddaughter when she was born. And nine months later, we were still working on the book. But we knew we had to bring it to an end at some stage. I was chatting to Margaret, obviously, from time to time. And, and we did. And, and sadly, six weeks later, uh, Roy died. But they gave me the huge honour of asking me to speak at his funeral. And so I decided to read as part of the address two or three pages of how he and Margaret had got together. And obviously, this was from the first book that Roy had written personally. And I, I read this. And afterwards, his, his son, who was a, a doctor, came up to me and said, Dad will never die. That was Dad speaking through those words. And I thought, wow. And that's when I realised I'd stumbled across something. And so my model is very much encouraging the client to write their own material because that has several benefits. One, I think personally it's much better. However, a good a ghostwriter is, it's very, very difficult to capture the essence of the person the way they can because they're using their own words. And also, uh, it's an awful lot easier. Um, it's a much less work, so you can work on more projects. But thirdly, it's their voice. Um, by definition, they like what they've written. My job is to edit it and to hopefully make it a bit better. Most of the time, they don't even notice what I've done, if you get it right. And they just think it was that good to start with. And that's fine. That's part of our job. But you never get that awkwardness of having interviewed someone and then written something up and then saying, well, it wasn't quite like that. Because they've written it, by definition, they like it. And particularly, I found with Roy, in reading it back to him, he was amazed because he was hearing it the way someone else was reading it. Um, but also, he just thought, wow, you know, that's, that's so much better than I thought. 
and it just gave him a lot of confidence. So the model works very well in that you can be working with more people, but they always love what they've written, and it takes you know a lot of the hard work out of it as well. Mike, that's a really interesting model. Um, A couple things come to mind. One, and I don't want to dwell on this because I think everybody who's already done life story books with somebody, we've all experienced um, this. um, I hate to call it a therapeutic effect, but that's basically what it is. So you said that this this first client of yours. he was he was sick. He'd been he'd had a couple of strokes, and his wife recognized the power of having um, of of reigniting that will to live by having somebody to sit down across from him and help him with a project like this. That's that's a beautiful gift to give to somebody, even if it is in the capacity of a you know a hired uh, memoir coach. But but getting back to your whole process, I'm kind of astounded. So you sat and you read to him all of the stories that he had written himself. um, And, and as, so I'm just, I'm trying to picture this in my mind, as you're going along, are you taking notes? You're stopping to ask him questions and he's filling in more information and then you're writing it right into the manuscript or do you take notes and work on things after you've seen the client? I guess a combination of both. I think something that you've got to bear in mind and you might be quite surprised about this is that the meetings are usually about six hours long. <laughs> I am surprised, yes. <laughs> so it's normally from about 10 in the morning till four in the afternoon. Sometimes I might take an hour for a break, but more often than not, we'll have a sandwich together and just keep on chatting. So it's a long period of time. So to answer your question, the answer is yes, kind of all of the above. If it's just putting in a few words, then I'll, I'll, write, I'll write it into the manuscript. So by this stage... Um, we'll have two manuscripts. We'll have one each and it'll be double spaced. So I'll be editing. I'll be writing things into my manuscript so that I can go back and tidy it up. But as a result of the meeting, I will also go away and send a letter or email saying, okay, we discovered these additional areas. You were telling me that great story about, you know, when you were 12 years old and you fell off the, uh, off your the, the bike and whatever it was. Um, so I make notes of those various stories and then between meetings, they will write them up mm. and I will then next time pick it up and I'll integrate it within the manuscript. So it's entirely up to them. Occasionally they might tell me a story and I will put that in. Um, it depends how long it is, but the more that is their original writing, the better. And in general, are the clients that you're working with now or since uh, that first storyteller, um, are they coming to you with things already written? Or do you hear from people who have not yet written anything but know that they want to dive into it and do the writing themselves? Yeah, it's it, again, it's both. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably about a third of my clients have never written any, haven't written anything. And we start from scratch and the first meeting will be going through their life and discussing lots and lots of things, which is where the book Times of Our Lives came in. It it covers a typical life of someone born around about the Second World War. It is from a British perspective, although there are examples of people who, you know, from, from elsewhere and certainly Americans. But it looks at things in an incredible amount of detail. So it discusses their parents And if we're talking about their father, it might start with what sort of hat did he wear? 
because back in the 30s and 40s, most men wore hats. What cigarettes did he smoke? What newspaper did he read? What, what sports teams did he support? And all these sorts of things, and it's building a picture. And it goes through, I asked them to describe their family home or their childhood home in detail. Which door did they go in, the front or the back? Was it locked? You know, what was on the floor? Uh, what was on the ceilings? Were there these sticky fly papers they used to have? And all bits and pieces. What was outside the backyard? You know, it may have been the outside toilet. All these things. And I asked them to, and it's amazing what anecdotes come together. I was asking a chap at one stage about his house. And he started talking about his bedroom. And I thought, okay, most people don't, but fair enough. And he was saying, well, obviously back then there was no double glazing. So in the winter, there'd be ice on the inside of the window and he'd see his breath in front of his, his face. And I don't know if it's the same in the States, but uh, uh, back then they used to have something called a chamber pot, which uh, they used to basically wee into at night rather than having to go downstairs or outside. And it was it was called a gazunder because it goes under the bed. Oh, it, I've never heard that before. <laughs> telling us about these sorts of things, and maybe there was no uh, electricity upstairs. He'd take a candle up or whatever it was. But the thing that he was focusing on, which I was trying to draw out, was he was saying that he shared a room with his brother, his brother Wolfie, Wolfgang, uh, George or Jerzy, who I worked with, was Czechoslovakian. And Wolfie was, I don't know, eight or nine, a couple of years older than George. And he said the thing that always struck him was that the moon always shone through on Wolfie, but never on him, on his bed. And so one day he said to Wolfie, you know, why does the moon shine on you and not on me? And Wolfie, being quite quick-witted, said, oh, well, the, the moon only ever shines on boys who are good. And this, this really bugged George. And he thought, well, hang on a minute, I'm good. Anyway, three or four nights later, he woke in the middle of the night and the position of the moon had changed and it was shining on George. And he said he really felt that God was saying he was good. He was special. And I thought, wow. Um, I mean, there's no intrinsic value to that, but I wish I knew something about like my, you know, if that was my grandfather. I just love those little stories. And ultimately, that's what we're looking for, Amy. We're looking for these these little anecdotes, things that perhaps people haven't said to anyone in 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years. But I take the view, if you remember them after that period of time, put it in because I'll say to clients and I'll hold up a book and say, look, if this book was written by your grandmother or your great uncle or whoever it was, what would you want to know? And the answer is, well, everything. You know, if they told you they had an imaginary friend called Fred, That'd be great because that might explain why you've got such a great imagination or whatever it is. But, you know, you see things repeating themselves and it's it really is these smallest, smallest details that are just gold dust. Mm, I agree. And, and I just got chills when you told that story and about the moonshine um, um, because that you're right. I mean, those are the little avenues that we can help people um walk down where, you know, when he first started talking about his bedroom, it's very likely that he had no idea why it had this emotional significance for him. And you helped him find that. 
Yeah. Um, and you know, I think that's, that's when the payoff really comes for us when we're, when we're doing these kinds of books. Okay. So just to, to paint a clearer picture in my head, um, if you have a new client and this is the process that you're using with them, you yeah. said that you have, you have your companion book with lots of questions to prompt their memories. If we're talking about somebody who has not come to you with stuff that they've already written. They're just, it's a blank slate. They haven't started, but they know that they want to do the writing with you, um, with you sitting by their side. That first meeting, are you just priming the pump of, uh, you know, getting their memories going and just talking? And if so, are you doing any recording there? Or is there actually a component of them writing during that first meeting? Uh, another, I'm going to give you two uh things that hopefully will surprise you quite significantly. Um, one now and one a bit later. Um, the one now is that I don't record anything because in recording, you then spend hours going back through it all. And it takes, it takes that much time again, plus making notes and everything else. So I make notes as I go along, but I don't record anything. Occasionally, I might if the person's particularly frail and the family have asked, they want the voice of the person. But actually, what I'd rather do is once they have written their book, then to record their story onto tape um, or digitally. So oh, and have you done that? I don't mean to interrupt, but that is something that I've been thinking about. And I think it is such a great idea. And I haven't heard of anybody doing that yet. But have you actually had yes. clients? Oh, my gosh. That's, that's you know. That's another project as well, which is more day fees. But it's it's actually it's just wonderful that that voice is recorded forever. It it not only is it wonderful because we could hear the person's voice, and voices don't change all, all that much. Uh, once you have your adult voice, it doesn't change all that much. So it's something that is usually recognizable years after you're gone to the people who knew you. But the other thing is that um, now. Audible, uh, with, you know, audible.com and audiobooks. That's just how a lot of people are ingesting written material. Instead of opening up a book or even opening up a Kindle, they're yeah. putting their earbuds in and listening. So that's a fantastic idea for people who are maybe in the younger generations so that they can listen to their elder relative telling the story. I love that, Mike. So, yeah, there's no recording. To go back to the question of have they written, have they not, some have written maybe 20, 30, 40 pages, some of whom actually think that they've written the book, but of course they haven't. You know, that's that's just a fraction. And whilst I may give them my book that I've written, um, I don't tend to refer to it. I use it, I mean, it's just in my head the whole time about going through somebody's life, you know, and talking about their school days and talking about, I know, first loves and over here, we had national service, which was, um, you know, sort of joining up in the army for a couple of years, which was, which was compulsory for about 10 years after the Second World War, but various other things. So you know what buttons to sort of which avenues to go down. Other people do get in touch and they have written it. And sometimes that might be 50,000 words. Sometimes it's, I don't know, you know, 200,000 words, and which is, wow, you know, congratulations. That's incredible. Even then, there's often things you can sort of draw out further or you can help them to edit it. With some of those, all we do is read it through together to tidy it up, to help structure it. One of the key things, I think, is it's, I always say to them, it's not just a book, it's a hobby. 
And that's really, really important. Mm. And going back to that first meeting, that first six hours, particularly if they've not written anything, part of that meeting is getting to know each other because I cannot emphasize enough how it is imp- how important it is to generate, to establish that rapport because the better the rapport, the better their book will be. So obviously we have ground rules such as it's obviously confidential from both parties. So they'll tell me things they've never told anybody else. And similarly, I'll tell them things that, you know, sometimes I never told anyone else myself. And I'm very open with them and I'll talk to them about my, my, my wife, my children, my family, um, simply because I think the more open I am, the more open they will be and the better their book will be. But just because we discuss it or just because they even write it does not mean to say it has to appear in the book. Obviously, they have total control as to what appears. And that does come in, bringing that sort of therapeutic, cathartic effect, because sometimes just writing things down, even if you can consign it to the waste paper bin, the very fact that they have written that. I mean, a chap literally no, no more than two hours ago this afternoon, he's in his, I don't know, mid-70s, he's a very successful businessman, and he was opening up and telling me things that I was amazed, and this is what the fourth book we've worked on together, oh. and I was absolutely stunned at what he was sharing, and I felt so humbled and privileged, and obviously that goes no further, and I just was so pleased that he felt that he could, you know, share in that way. Um, and, yeah, it's our job is just a, an amazing privilege. Mm, I agree. Okay, I'm still trying to wrap my brain around how you're doing this. So let's let's start by talking about somebody who has not done any writing. Yeah. And you, you go over to their house and you know that you've got basically a whole day with them. So a six-hour, give or take, block of time. Yeah. Um, and you're talking to each other. You're getting to know each other. You're not doing any kind of recording. Are they actually writing? Do the, do the people have um, a laptop set up and they're writing as you're talking with them, um, either in that first meeting or subsequent meetings? Or, or is, um, is it just to talk about things and figure out where they want to go with the writing? And then does the writing happen while you're with them or does it happen in between meetings? Okay. The writing always happens in between meetings. Okay. That, all right. That makes a lot more sense to me. Okay. No writing there. And then unless occasionally they're really struggling and I might open my laptop and we'll do a few paragraphs together just to get them going. So, but rarely do we do that. If you do that, it takes many, many more meetings. Um, so we try, I try to avoid that. They tend not to make notes. They might have a pad that they might write, I don't know, uh, a few a few words. And if, they, if they've written, I don't know, one page throughout the six hours, I'd be surprised. I tend to make notes. I do make notes. And I would normally write to them after that first meeting with a very detailed sort of say, well, we discuss these areas. Although sometimes I'll keep them to myself because you don't want to overload them. The end of the meeting, um, I would normally give them some homework and that would be saying, well, that's great. You know, write about your school days, write about your parents, write about your your house, write about your first job. It doesn't have to be the beginning of their life. And I stress this because the most difficult part is starting, is getting righted 
oh, sorry, getting writing. If they have had a difficult childhood and it does happen, maybe there's something awful, maybe there's some abuse, maybe there's some trauma, and they feel uncomfortable writing about that, leave that till later. The book will ultimately, inevitably, flow chronologically, but it does not have to be written chronologically. So mm-hmm. if they want to, if it gets them going and they want to write about when they met their partner or their uh, a particularly uh, special job that they had or a holiday, that's fine. Just take it. Because what you want is 20 or 30 pages. It may be handwritten notes uh, or handwritten writing, or it may be on a, on a, a word processed. Um, probably about 50-50 for my clients. A lot of them still write in longhand, which they find more expressive. And I don't mind that. Uh, you know, we can, we can cope with that. One of them has actually dictated, but you've got to be pretty good at dictating to be able to do that. But he had been a you know, senior director for a multinational and he was very used to um, dictating, was very accomplished. So invariably there are no notes. I will send them some notes after the meeting, and but I'll also keep them to myself. And when we get to that point, I can then remind them and say, look, we've, we've talked about this. So my job of that first meeting is really to – to open them up, to, to set the boundaries, the parameters of, of the, the association and obviously the finances, which we can talk about later if you wish. On the first meeting, I will often draw up a small family tree of the, the relatives that they can remember, that they, they know of. I'm not into genealogy. I'm not interested in doing research and I would I would encourage them not to do research because if they're the sort of people who do research the odds are you're not going to get around to actually writing the book because the Mm. research will take over the project and I've had that happen so I'm only interested in their living memories or what they know about the family so they might know something about someone three or four generations back great put it in but I'm particularly interested in what they remember of their grandparents uh, what they um, you know, know of aunts and uncles. I mean, I was speaking to a lady about her grandmother and she was saying to me, oh, granny had such a great sense of humour. And I was saying, well, this is good. This is great. Super. Um, can you give me an example? And so she sat there for, for a minute or so. And she said, okay. And then she sat bolt upright in her chair. And she said, granny used to sit bolt upright. Um, she was uh, quite a, a Victorian sort of lady, very severe looking. She had her hair t- tight back in a tight uh, back in a bun, um, and she wore uh, black. Uh, well, they were called widow's weeds over here. Widow's weeds. Uh, effectively, her husband had died, and she was still in mourning. So she dressed in black with a tight bodice and a voluminous skirt, um, and. To all intents and purposes, she looked a very severe lady. But she said she was great fun. And she said, one day, my brother and I, we were, we were playing on the, uh, in the living room on the carpet. She said that the carpet wasn't fitted wall to wall. It was only a, a patch of rug. That's all we had back then. But she said we were playing. And then we heard the, the latch of the gate go. And it was the district nurse come to give us our cod liver oil, which we hated. <laughs> This was a, a weekly event and we loathed it. And, you know, everyone knew we loathed it. 
Anyway, before you could say anything, there was Granny lifting up her skirt saying, quick, quick, quick. <laughs> and she said, my brother and I, we, we, we hid under her skirt. And um, the, the district nurse came in and, and Granny said, uh, no, uh, they must be out playing. I've not seen them. Yeah, I think you better come back next week. We'll skip this week. Okay, thanks. Goodbye. But she said, we got away with it. Fantastic. And I thought, doesn't that say so much more than just saying granny had a great sense of humor? So we're drawing these things out because you've got the time to be able to do that. Um, so I draw up a small family tree, principally so I know, you know, who the siblings are, uh, who the nephews and nieces and certainly the children and grandchildren are. And if there's any uh, delicate areas to be careful about, maybe a divorce in the family or something like that. Um, so I normally do that, and that, that's useful to sort of take a, an hour or so. Uh, and I just keep that in my file so I know who's who. Uh, and who are the key people who are going to be uh, spoken about? A couple of other things I ask them to do is to consider who is going to be reading the book. Who is it for? Why are they writing it? Because that's very important. And for most people, it's, you know, they're doing it for their grandchildren or to remember a partner who isn't around anymore or their parents. I love it, actually, when people say, actually, I'm doing it for me. And I think mm. that's fantastic. And why do so few of us find that easy to say? But something I'll then say is, look, look at your Christmas card list or your old address books and look at some of the people. If you've been sending a Christmas card to someone for 30, 40, 50 years, don't they, don't they deserve mention in your book? Because the odds are they're going to find out about the book and want to read it. You know, if, if a friend of yours wrote a book, you'd love to read it. So, you know, it's worth looking at those things. And even now, if you say, oh, I love meeting up, I don't know, with friends uh, at the Bridge Club or the Bowls Club or at church, and just saying I love meeting up with, with Mary and Jenny and Jeff and Pete – uh, you know, every other week when we go around there for coffee, you know, that that's four people who are going to be delighted they've been mentioned in the book. So simple little things like that. So there's, yeah, I mean, I don't know how long we've got today, but I can go on for hours. <laughs> and I guess you're probably going to want to know about the financial structures and everything else. I am, but I'm not ready to ask about that because every time you start talking, about five new questions pop up in my head. Um, so, so you... Um, when you're sitting there and talking to the the storyteller and nobody is actually doing writing, but you're you're there all day, are you focusing on a particular theme or a particular era of life? Or is there any kind of structure or is it just, you know, whatever they feel like talking about and wherever you're trying to find the stories? And the second part of the question is then, how do they remember that? Is it just something that they naturally do when they sit down to to at their typewriter or, or at their writing desk and start writing out the the stories that came to mind when they were speaking with you okay they they do remember an, an awful lot and I, and I will have been taking notes i will take copious notes during that first meeting in fact during all meetings so i will be able to remind them of certain things um although i'm looking for the key stories at this stage because what would normally happen between meetings is they will send me, either email me or post me, you know, hopefully four, five, six, seven thousand words, which I will then go through and edit or type up possibly in the first place and edit. Then at the second meeting, we will read that back through together. 
So that then forms part of the syllabus, if you like, or, or what we're going to do, the framework for the second meeting is going through that. And it's at that point where you're then going into further detail and saying, well, this is great, but what about this? What about that? And asking so many more questions. So you've got that sort of structure. And the way it normally becomes, by the time we're getting into the third, fourth meeting, the morning will often be reviewing what um, they've said, um, yeah, what they've, what we've reviewed or I've edited since last time. And then what they've written since last time will be in the afternoon. So they don't always send it to me. It does help if they send it because it makes it more efficient for them. I mean, within this, obviously, it depends how many meetings they want. Typically, there might be, oh, anything between six and a dozen meetings. There can easily be 15 or 20. I think that the my personal record is 56 meetings. Mm. Uh, but that was that's about the sa- that's about the same for me. But you know, just sitting down and interviewing somebody. But it was just over fifty interview hours. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Um, Mine is fifty meetings at six hours each. That's three. <laughs> okay, never mind. You win. <laughs> but she was an Air Commodore, which at the time was the highest ranking woman in the RAF, the Royal Air Force. Mm-hmm. And even though she was so bright and so capable. She was, by this stage, she'd never married. She had no children. She was living by herself. And she just loved the meetings. And she would do next to nothing between meetings. And so I was sort of getting the computer out and doing a lot of it with her. Mm. And we'd, we'd actually pretty well finished it after three years. And she said, I don't want to finish here. I want to go back and start again and do it all again in more detail. So it ended up taking six years wow. meeting every month. And she was just one remarkable lady. And she only ever had four copies, one for herself and the other three for her three goddaughters. Mm. And, and, and her her friend phoned me after this dear lady died. And she said that Elspeth was proud of three things. Uh, she said this on her deathbed. One was being an air rank officer. Second was getting the CBE, which is a very high honour in England. Um, it's sort of just one down from being a... Uh, a knight being knighted or getting uh, becoming a dame um and the third thing was writing a life story she put it on the par with all that which was just amazing that's beautiful and and you made that happen for her um she was boy yeah that's incredible well so um it sounds like it's it's bringing to mind kind of um when people maybe after surgery or something, they have to have physical therapy. And so they're going to a physical therapist and they're actually doing the exercises with somebody with them um, or, or somebody who's just hired a trainer. And then of course, we're all supposed to be doing the exercises and the training in between meeting with the trainer or the physical therapist. Does that fit that analogy with how you're doing it with people writing their stories? It does. You do become a confidant, you are a pseudo counsellor. I mean, obviously, you've got to be very, very careful not to open up, you know, areas that are going to be be too tricky. Uh, mm-hmm. But you gauge that. You just learn that these people become very, very good friends. I mean, I've been invited to. Well, I think we had either I can't remember now. It's either eleven or thirteen clients to uh, to my wedding, and that's twenty years ago. And oh, you do. You become friends of the family. It's 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 incredible yeah i mean the difficulty in some ways is keeping in touch with people um after the book is written in in you know as much as you would like 
it sounds like quite a few of the people go on to have multiple projects with you. Yes, several have done. Yes, um, it's it's tricky. Uh, you know, sometimes they'll find something else to write about. Maybe that will be their genealogy. Maybe it will be uh, one lady. One uh, take. Uh, she was a, a a doctor, and they were the academic papers that she presented over the years. Um, I'm doing some now, which are quite fun. And if anything, it's it's just an excuse to meet. So it might be, I don't know, five, ten years since the first book was written, so there'll be an update. But then we'll look at lots of other areas. So I don't know if you have something in the States called Desert Island Discs, but it's a radio program that's been going on here for 50-odd years where people, the assumption is that you're on a desert island and you're allowed to take your eight favourite songs or, or records with you. And you then have to choose those. What records would you take? And because it's over a lifetime, people will choose them because they remind them of particular areas of their life. So I kind of do a Desert Island Discs with them and get them to choose their own music. But I'll also ask them things like, who are the five most influential people in their lives? The people perhaps who've um, given them a step up, a helping hand in their lives, who believed in them when other people didn't. So this can take two forms. You can have those that they've known, or you can also include those heroes from afar that they've never met. So it might be JFK, it might be Nelson Mandela. I mean, in England, it's often Winston Churchill. These sorts of people. Um, so, and I'll ask them, you know, if they want to talk about their favourite authors, their, their favourite concerts, their favourite operas, their favourite plays, their favourite food and restaurants, all these sorts of things. So, in a sense... The second book is very much a hobby, but also advice that they would like to pass on to others or advice that they've received. So it's very much a vehicle. It's not the second book would not be as widely distributed or have so many copies produced. I mean, incidentally, with most clients, I give them 10 um, paperback books with colour photos as standard and thereafter, if they want more, they can have more. So we're only looking at those sorts of numbers. And I really try to dissuade them from any ideas of publishing because the chances of proper publication are now impossible. Right. Well, these are these are different types of books than what the general readership is going to be interested in. Um, but I'm, I'm always telling people that doesn't mean that your family and your friends aren't going to be intensely interested in the types of details and stories that you that you bring to the book. Um, it's just it's a different animal altogether. I think yeah, life story yeah. books um, and, and that I, I do want to get to. Um, um, you graciously offered to talk to us about how the finances work. Um, and I want to get to that. But first, um, when you're helping somebody, not with the, the second books that they come to you later to help you, uh, to help them write, but with that first real true life story book, um, are you helping them also kind of find the structure of things? So is there any kind of developmental editing going on? Or is it just kind of how the stories come out? That's how they're going to be told in the, in the overall narrative. Now, the, the, the structure is very important, and that's something that I will work on with them. Um, I mean, it normally, as I say, it normally flows chronologically, um, but, but there, you know, there'll be bits within that. For example, if they write a lot about holidays, sometimes they might try and do that in one chapter. Well, that can become a bit tedious. So I'd rather the holidays are interspersed throughout their life. 
but even so, there might be an awful lot more, and in which case I might suggest that some of them go as an appendix. So appendices are very important um, if an area is potentially going to create an imbalance within the book. Mm-hmm. Um, so we will work on the structure together. To be honest, almost invariably a book will fall into place of its own accord. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there, there's obviously having done a, a few over the years, you've, you know, there's and actually my, my other book, Write Your Life Story, that does talk about structures, particularly if it's, if it's a joint book written by husband and wife, for example, then there'll be different structures within that depending on whether the book is being written evenly or if one person is taking the lead and the other person is just chipping in from time to time. So there's various other structures there. But a book will invariably fall into place. Between meetings, I will be editing. Um, and so we'll go through any big changes that I've done at the next meeting so that they don't have any surprises. At the end of the project, I will get the book independently proofread because by that stage, I'm too close to it to be able to you know, proofread my own material. So I'll get a third person to, um, to, to give their opinion as well. Is there an average size or, or word count for these books, or is it all over the place? I, I tend to base my pricing on 50,000 words. So we're looking at a book of, say, 200 pages. Um, some are a bit shorter and maybe larger font. Really, I want to be looking at at least twenty twenty five thousand words. Um, and some people, my goodness, I mean, one chapter seven volumes just of his lifestyle. So, uh, I mean, one of those books covered a five week period on a holiday when he was a teenager and he won a scholarship to Scandinavia, and wow. he just wrote in so much detail. It was fabulous. Do most people come to you because they really want to share their stories with their family and their friends? Or um, is it also, is there an element of people wanting to have a creative hobby, some sort of creative endeavor? So I guess my question is, are they more concerned about getting the stories told or are there many of them who really love language and writing? I think the sort of people who get in touch, they've got a natural predisposition towards writing. You'll probably find that they've been, you know, avid letter writers over their life or maybe they've kept a diary, that certainly helps because a book is just like, like like writing a letter, just lots of letters. So it certainly helps. Some people may be, they may be, have encouraged by their children. Um, again, on the hobby aspect, they're looking for something for their parents to keep them going, or they're genuinely interested in hearing these stories and having them recorded for the grandchildren. Um, so sometimes, I, I guess a bit of both, sometimes people come to me and they've never really considered writing until someone in the family or someone said, look, you really should write a book. Or, hey, I found this chap and you really should do this. Or, hey, dad, I've got you a Christmas present. They even pay for it. And, the, and the, the person I'm working with doesn't even know what it's costing. So that happens as well. Um, so, yeah, but there are some others who come to me quite rarely who say, you know, I've always nursed this desire. I've always... I've always wanted to write a book and this is this is my chance. So even the the times when it's an adult child who hires you and they surprise a parent with this gift, the parents aren't saying, "Oh no, 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 I don't know how to write. I couldn't write." Or do you ever do you ever come across that attitude? 
Uh, the the bigger attitude I come across, which is very which you can't really overcome, is that the parent doesn't want to write, and if they don't want to write, that's the end of it. You know, mm-hmm. however much a child wants it, if dad says no, I've just got no desire, you know, I can try as much as I like, um, but there's got to be, um, you know, even if it's yeah, okay, I'd like to do this for the grandchildren, but they've they've got to want to do it, right? Um, and then it's my job, I suppose, to inspire them. And just by chatting, and that's what the first meeting is for, is just to get them to think about some of these special people in their lives and that they have this opportunity to keep them alive. They have the opportunity of keeping their parents and their grandparents alive because Mm -hmm. these people who perhaps died 20, 30, 50 years ago, who no one else remembers, they have the opportunity of keeping them alive. And if you can sort of inspire them in that way and also to show them how interesting they are and and the times through which they have lived we all know the last 60 70 80 years have seen so much change and so many momentous milestones you know they've seen man on the moon they've seen technology they've seen you know things like jfk's assassination um there is so much and i know it almost becomes a bit oh, I know, hackneyed, if that's a phrase you use, or cliched, you know, about, you know, what things were like in their day, you know, before they had mobile phones and all this sort of thing. But, it, you know, it, it's genuinely true. And, and these these very, very special stories are worth recording because, you know, I've got two children, what, 13 and 17, and they have not got a clue um, of, you know, what life was like 30, 40, 50, 80 years ago. And it's worth recording. I agree. I agree. What's What would be hackneyed in a commercially published memoir is just the, the precious jewels of a, a family history or a personal life story. So, yeah, I, I, I agree with you. Okay, well, let's talk a little bit about um, um, how – how these are financed, um, how, what is the pay structure? And also a second part to that question is um, it sounds like you have multiple projects going at one time. Is that correct? Yeah. I'm probably working on about a dozen clients and uh, projects at any time. Yeah. Um, occasionally I might get other people to uh, certainly uh, be doing typing of bits and pieces or um, yeah. Um, if it's a particularly complex project, I might get someone else to go through it first uh, if it needs you know, substantial editing. Um, but, yeah, I bear in mind that some clients we don't meet for three or six months between meetings mm-hmm. um, and others meet every every month. So it really does depend. I like to be out perhaps twice a week uh, visiting clients and then three days a week in the office, that sort of balance. Um, and. And typically, uh, there's about a month in between the meetings with with any given client. Yeah, typically a month to two months. I'd say maybe oh, okay. one month, six weeks, something like that, to to keep the momentum going. You don't want it to stagnate, right. so you you want to keep the interest. Um, the pricing structure is is incredibly simple, um, and then I'll tell you the the other thing that will you will find difficult to believe. Uh, the final thing. I can't wait. I love surprises. <laughs> okay. Um, the I price it on a project fee, which is only payable at the end, and I charge £4,000. This is based on 50,000 words. 
Uh, and then the meeting, the fee for the meeting, I charge, well, £300 a day, which is oh, well, I know, about $400 a day. I have to charge t- um, VAT, which is tax of 20%, which is a shame, and then some petrol money if they're, I don't know, more than 100 miles away. So, um, yeah, typically it might cost, say, £400, maybe $500 for the six-hour day. Um, and they have as and they have as or a few meetings as they like. Okay, so so those are two different charges. The one is for actually getting the the book at the end, and the other is for the time that you're spending with them. Yeah. So so the meetings they pay on the day, and they you have as many or as few as they like, and as long as they keep liking the meetings, then they'll keep booking them. Uh, and then the final thing. So I'm obviously taking a risk is because I've put a lot of work in between times because it's not just a day you're with them. Sometimes you're putting two or three days' worth of work in between the meetings, particularly if that project is not 50,000 words. It's 100, 120, 150,000 words. So that project fee of £4,000 is payable at the end. I charge £50 a thousand words over the 50,000 words. Mm. So if they write another 50,000 words then that would be another £2,500, 50 times 50. So that puts the final project fee up to £6,500. But the thing that will, I think you'll find surprising is that we don't have any contracts. So I know when I was in the States and I gave a talk on this and I I asked people to put up their hands who uses contracts and pretty well everybody did. Uh, And I asked how easy is it to enforce a contract and it's much more difficult. So I did have contracts early on, but I don't anymore because we're working by trust. You get to know them incredibly well. I must admit twice in 27 years I have been let down and not got the final project fee. But, you know, twice in 27 years isn't too bad ratio. Uh, After the first meeting, I will, and of course in advance, if they wish, I will send them a letter explaining the structure and the me- the meetings being from 10 till 4 and what the pricing is and that for that they will get 10 books with 50 photos and this sort of thing and then there'll be additional for the extra words and extra photos thereafter. They can hold me to that, but I can't hold them to anything. So if they want to stop the project halfway through, that's my bad luck. Mm. Um, I think it's happened once or twice in 27 years. You know, they're so, they so buy into the whole thing. They love it. And if actually, they're, if they're not enjoying it and they're not going to write, I can't force them to write. If I've got whatever, you know, I can have the best contract in the world, but I can't force them to write. And if they don't write, there's no book. So I can't see a point in contracts. And actually, it makes it much a much easier sell. So when you're with them first off, you say, look, you know, yes, there is that fee payable when you get the books, but you only pay it when you get the books and you are delighted with the books. If not, you don't pay it. So they are protected. Obviously, it's costing them the £400 for the day. Um, But that's up to them. If they want another meeting, they have another meeting. In fact, people who live, I know, more than a couple of hours away, we'll often just have a trial day and I'll tell them, well, rather than me go out and see them to discuss all this in the first place, I'll discuss some bits over the phone and we'll say we'll have a trial day and if by lunchtime 
they feel it's not for them, I'll disappear and nothing's payable. If they carry on to the end of the day, well, then that will be, um, you know, a properly fee-paid day. Mm. And how often do people contact you and then decide, no, it's too expensive or it's too much time or it's not something that I really want to do? I think that's the difficulty we all find. Um, I find the sooner I can get in front of a potential client, the better. Because you know, and I probably have a strike rate of one in two when I go and see someone, I probably won. But I mean, to be to be fair, I've validated a lot of that on the phone. And I've tried to give them indication of price. It's very difficult telling them the price on the phone, because for some people, they think the whole project's going to cost like $75, you know, <laughs> right? Uh, and you must get this and they say how much. Um, but if you can, if you can get to meet them, and you can fire their passion and their their love of something like this. You show them some other books, and they just think, "Hey, this is fantastic." Um, then, yeah, I probably one in two people that I go and see. I'm fortunate that some people have been recommended. Other people have heard me give talks, or perhaps they bought my books. So, um, yeah, when I did help other people doing this more, we did have a little um, group of us at one stage. They found it more difficult, so perhaps they might only get one in three, one in four clients if they go to see them. Um, but so well, I, I think one one out of two, if that's your, you know, if that's the average, that's a really good batting average. Um, yeah. uh, because I, I find that I have to speak to quite a few people before somebody actually says, "Yes, I want to hire you, and I want you to do the uh, book for me." Well, I'm not. I'm not saying it's one in two people I speak to. It's probably one in 10 people I speak yeah, to. But it's one in two that you one meet with. two that I go to see. I got gotcha. you. Okay. I will try. And if they live fairly locally, I'll often say, hey, you know, I'm going to be in the area next week and if, you know, pop in on the way back from seeing someone um, and try and do it that way. The longer before meeting them, the less chance there is they're going to go for it. Uh, I have got some nice literature that I send them. Sorry, I shouldn't use that word nice. I hate it. Um, but we've got some good literature. Um, I try actually not to send literature, though, because with all these things, it gives them more opportunity to talk themselves out of it. I think the sooner mm. you meet them and you just feel, hey, look, you know, if, if they don't like the colour of my socks, then the odds are we're not going to be working together. But if we feel we can work together and they're fortunate enough to have that sort of money and you know, they can justify it, that's the other thing. Sometimes they don't feel they can justify it. Spending. Right. That attitude I find so heartbreaking because um, that's when you really have to explain to somebody, you know, what a gift it is that they're giving to other people uh, when they take the time and make the investment to do this kind of project. Well, you know, we're obviously, you know, both of the same accord on that. You know, we, we, we love what we do. and We know the value of it. Sometimes the children do encourage their parents. Often I will encourage a child to be at that first meeting. If the parent is, well, if they're, if they're in any way vulnerable or if they, if in chatting to me over the phone, I will ask what the situation is with the children or how many children they've got. And if you get the feeling, you can, you can tell quite easily where some parents, are, you know, they're fully independent and know this is my project, that's fine. But if they go and say, oh, I've got to speak to Jenny about this. You say, well, that's great. But, you know, if Jenny could be at the meeting with us as well, so much the better. Um, a lot of children are incredibly supportive of their parents and think it's the best thing they can do. 
Sadly, and I'm sure you've come across it as well, you get those children who would rather have the money and kind of talk their parents out of it. Why do you want to do this? And that's just very, very sad. But there's nothing we can do about that. Well, Mike, this has been fantastic. And I hope that you'll agree to come on the show again, because I still have so many questions for you. I'm pretty fascinated with your whole model. You're the only one that I've heard of that's doing it like this. You know, maybe there's others out there, but I think it's a very interesting twist being their coach in such an intimate way and sitting with somebody for long periods of time um, as they're not only telling their stories, but as they are expressing them themselves in writing. So um, I, I do want to give you the opportunity to, to tell us a little bit about the course that you have. Um, I think you said that you have an online course that you're, that you're just now releasing. Um, can you tell us what that's all about? Yeah, um, it was a, a fellow a colleague from the APH, and he's very much into the audio side of things. His, his name is Imran Ahmed. And we've set up another little company apart from my own company to distribute this. And he's very much more on the, the technical side and the audio side. And he was saying, look, Mike, you know, you've, you've just, you've got so much information. You've got to sort of create a course. And the course essentially is encouraging people how to write their own book. But it goes through in great detail talking about their childhood and various aspects of their lives, some of which I've, I've touched upon. Uh, it is looking at it very much from an English or UK point of view um, and aimed at people who would be in their 70s, 80s, 90s. But, of course, that can be adapted. The same things hold true with the TV series that you would know the ones that are you know, germane to you and, and in your clients. So the, the same sort of... Um, the same points would hold true. Um, it's something like a five and a half hour course. I think it's in twenty four different modules, um, and obviously I can I can send you the link to that. That's no problem. And uh, yeah, if 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 people are interested, with that super. And I'd love any feedback because I just think the more people we can help, the better. You know, I, I have plenty of clients. I'm fortunate. I know it's not easy getting clients. The other thing I would say is to any of your listeners. Please feel free to use this model, but to adapt it to yourselves. Most people will find six hours too long to be with a client. Do a half-day meeting um, and charge, I don't know, proportionately less. I mean, instead of charging £300, charge 200 So what will that be? I don't know, $275 or whatever it is. You've got to be comfortable with what you're charging or what the market will bear. People starting early on, obviously, you charge less. You're 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 just keen to get a client, um, so that's entirely up to you. But you can adapt it to suit your own circumstances. Great advice. Yeah, thank you for that. And if people want to get in touch with you, or if they want to um, purchase the books that you've written, where do they go? Um, if you go to my website, which is uh, Bound Biographies. Dot com. It's all there. Um, there's my phone number. You can contact me. Always happy to speak to anyone. Just bear in mind we have a slightly different time zone. But um, <laughs> it's, uh, no, it's, always, it's always good to speak to a kindred spirit. And, you know, we're not in competition. There's so many people out there. The more people we can all help, the better. Oh, thank you for saying that, because that's exactly what I tell people all the time. And especially people new to the field or who are just thinking about getting into the field, they're very concerned about competition. And 
we are like you and I and everybody else doing this kind of work. We are so lucky because there is a need for more people to do this. The more people who get out there and do this, the more it will rise in the public's consciousness that, hey, I can hire somebody to help me do this story. This is a worthwhile project. Because at this point, there just aren't nearly enough people out there providing this service. So um, you just spoke, you, you just said a message that's near and dear to my heart. Yeah, well, we're, we're both speaking the same language because it's it's most people do not know this sort of thing exists. And the more people doing it, we are educating the market. And you know, we've been talking about this tipping point for years and we're still not there, sadly. I would love it one day if this became mainstream and people were thinking, hey, in 20 years time, you know, when I reach retirement, I'm going to write my life story. And it just becomes a natural thing to do. Um, Agreed. Yeah. So, but yeah, we we. <laughs> this is why I love speaking to to people like yourself, Amy. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate it, and I think the listeners probably have a lot to mull over, and you know, maybe have some ideas that they can bring back to their own business. So, I appreciate you coming on the show, and it's an open invitation if you ever want to come back. Because, like I said, there's a few other things that I would have loved to touch on with you, um, and maybe we can do that at a later date. I'd be very happy to. Great. Okay. Well, take care. Thank you. And yourself. And that does it for our interview with Mike Oak of Bound Biographies. If you'd like to visit his website or see his books or his new course on memoir writing, you can find links to all of that in today's show notes. Go over to thelifestorycoach.com and look for episode 45. And remember, if you haven't entered the contest for a free copy of Scrivener, there's still time. To get your name in the drawing, all you have to do is write a review of this podcast on iTunes, then shoot me an email with, I reviewed the podcast in the subject line of the email. You can send that to amy at thelifestorycoach.com. I'll announce the winner on the podcast the week of February 18th. And lastly, thanks to all of you who joined the directory. We now have a listing of life story professionals from three continents, four countries, and 25 of the U.S. states. If you still want to join the directory, if you're working in the field either full-time, part-time, or as a volunteer, send an email to amy at thelifestorycoach.com and I'll make sure to get you a form. Thanks for listening to today's show. And until next time, go out and save someone's story.